Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back, everyone. And we have Dr. Mari Kirsten from the Peat Surgery Department at Steve Biko Academic Hospital. And today we're going to be talking about Hirschsprung's disease. Welcome back, Dr. Kirsten. What is Hirschsprung's disease? When I ask this question in an examination and you answer me it's a ganglionosis, then I'll give you 50%. But then you have to tell me where is this aganglionosis? It is in the distal colon and rectum. That will give you 65% if you answer it in that way. But why do we have aganglionosis? That is the the question that will actually give you a distinction. If you realize that this neural crest cells migrate in the GI tract, and that happens quite early in the first to the 10th week of gestation, and this uh, migration is from cranial to caudal in Auerbach and Meissner's plexuses. And this is important because you then cannot develop Hirschsprung's disease. It is present at birth because this problem happened during the fifth and the tenth week of gestation. And also, you cannot have a ganglionosis of the ascending colon or only of the transverse colon because this was a process of migration from top to the bottom, cranial to caudal, and this migration stops somewhere. And distal to that, you don't have any ganglion cells. And so what is the pathophysiology or the effect of these nerve plexuses not developing properly? If you don't have ganglion cells, it's not possible to have a proper peristalsis in the bowel. And what physically happens is there will be peristalsis up to the aganglionotic area. It can't go any further. So that proximal bowel will fill up and dilate. And the distal bowel will stay small and a narrow segment. Secondly, you also have hypertrophy of the extrinsic innervation. And that results in an increased muscle tone of the anal sphincter and therefore they are not uh, able to pass flatus or stools and that's what I told you in the lecture in constipation and incontinence that a child with Hirschsprung's disease cannot soil. If he's got this hypertonic anal sphincter he cannot ho- have overflow incontinence. How common is Hirschsprung's disease? It is not as common as some of the other congenital abnormalities. It's more or less one in 5,000 births. And then there are different types. It could be a short segment where only the rectum and part of the sigmoid is involved. That is in about 90% of cases. But it could be a longer segment in the rest of the cases where the rectum, the sigmoid, and then any part of the colon can be involved. And in some rare cases, you can have total aganglionosis where there's no ganglion cells in the colon or in the small bowel. And that is a very serious condition. It is possible that 
they can be a family history, means that it's a, a genetic disease. But in most cases, we find that it's just uh, random and then there's not a risk for other children in the family to have the same problem. We also know that there are associated anomalies possible and that could be anything from the heart, from the kidneys. They could also have an anorectal malformation. And we do see that Down syndrome babies can have Hirschsprung's disease as well. How do infants present that have Hirschsprung's disease? The very first sign would be that they don't pass meconium. And at this stage, I want to remind you of the five reasons for a baby not to pass meconium. Then that could be the uh, anorectal malformation, no anus present. It could be a small bowel atresia, Hirschsprung's disease. It could be a malrotation with a volvulus, or it could be if there's something wrong with a meconium, as in meconium ileus or sticky meconium. So that's a very important question to answer if uh, a child is not passing meconium to look for all those reasons and keep in mind that within 24 hours they should pass meconium, otherwise you could also think of Hirschsprung's disease. But together with not passing meconium, they would have quite big abdominal distension. Why do they get abdominal distension? Because they've got this very tight anal sphincter, they also cannot pass flatus. All the air that they swallow, as a baby normally does, then they cannot pass the flatus and their bowel just distends more and more. It is uh, resonant on percussion. When you do the rectal examination, there will be an explosion. And now you can understand why. Because when you put your finger in, you're actually relaxing that muscle. When you take it out, all the air together with the stools will come out as an explosion. And that's very typical of Hirschsprung's disease. And if it's not diagnosed in the early postpartum period? They could present with poor feeding and vomiting is quite a late symptom because it's such a low obstruction. In few patients we will see enterocolitis because they've got stasis and this is now in neonates. They've got stasis in the proximal dilated bowel and then they've got translocation, goes into septicemia, and that can be an acutely ill child with an acute abdomen, can be fatal. And only in about 3% of cases will they present then with perforation of this very dilated bowel. In the infant that you would suspect has Hirschsprung's disease, how would you go about confirming your diagnosis? Again, it's important to start with the history. And the first thing is um, that they pass meconium at birth. Were they constipated since birth? They can't be well for the first month of life, then start with constipation, and then you think this is Hirschsprung's disease. It has to be since birth, and they never pass any flatus. Those are the questions that you need to ask. Which signs do you look for? On clinical examination, you find this very distended abdomen. Sometimes the mother will tell you, my baby's abdomen is so distended at the age of three months, 
I've got to buy him clothes for a baby of six months. And then you know there's really something wrong. You'll find this explosive stools on rectal examination. And then on the abdominal x-ray, very dilated bowel loops filled with air. And there are no air fluid levels. We call this actually an open lumen obstruction. There's not a physical obstruction. The bowel just cannot move. Then we go on to the contrast study, which will show a narrow distal segment. It's important that you use water-soluble contrast. And what you'll see is this very dilated proximal bell, which is actually the normal bell, a narrow distal segment. And if you repeat an abdominal x-ray of 24 hours, you'll find that there's retention of the contrast. When do you make the definitive diagnosis of Hirschsprung's disease? If you've got all these, you think this is Hirschsprung's disease. Then you come to the definitive diagnosis with histology. And that you can do with a full thickness rectal biopsy where they look for the ganglion cells. A full thickness rectal biopsy requires a general anesthetic. Is there another way of getting histology? In the tertiary institutions, we've got the possibility to just do a mucosal biopsy. And this we do a suction biopsy, so we don't have to take the patient to theater. We can do it in the ward. What is the emergency management of these patients? You'll treat these babies as a bowel obstruction. And therefore, you'll put in a nasogastric tube on free drainage, keep the baby no per os. In a newborn baby, we'll start with IV fluids, 5% dextrose on day one. And you calculate the amount of fluids according to the weight and the age of the baby. And then you refer to the pediatric surgeon. The emergency treatment for the pediatric surgeon, if it looks like an acute abdomen, we'll do an emergency colostomy. And then at the same time, we will do a proper rectal biopsy and a biopsy um, at the colostomy site. If the baby's got enterocolitis as well, you still treat as a bowel obstruction. They need to be resuscitated. So we'll give them a bolus ringer's lactate, 20 mls per kilo, and then continue with the maintenance fluid. Depending on the age, you decide what type of fluid to give. And then we'll do saline enemas, and then of course IV antibiotics. What is the surgical management of these patients? In our setting, we do the surgical management in three phases. So we'll start with a diverting colostomy to relieve the obstruction. Then we'll give them time to recover if they had enterocolitis or if it's an older child that had failure to thrive and was malnourished. At that time when we do the colostomy, we'll definitely do a full thickness rectal biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. The definitive treatment would be a resection of that aganglionotic bowel. That we do a laparotomy. We have the pathologist in theater so that we make sure that it's normal bowel that we anastomose to the anus. We call this a pull-through operation. There are different uh, surgical techniques. I think it's not important for you to know if it's a Swenson or a Suave or a Lester Martin or a modified Muller. It's just important that you know there are different techniques. The third stage would then be 
when you're sure that the anastomosis is healed properly, the child is in a good condition, that you now can reverse the colostomy and make an anastomosis of, of the bowel. It is possible to do a resection and a coloanal anastomosis in one stage without the colostomy. If the child is in a good condition, if you're 100% sure about the frozen section can be done, um, but I think mostly I would say that's for first world countries. How do older children present? The main complaint is severe constipation and often they're not passing stools for up to two weeks. In your history, you will find that the problem was since birth. They tried all kinds of medical, traditional treatment, and this child never passes stools without medication being administered to them. They also never pass inflators, so you can imagine how big and distended the abdomen will be. And this is one of the cases where they definitely will not fit in clothes for the age group. And when you examine them, the rectum will be empty because there's no peristalsis to bring the stools into the rectum. And in rare cases, they can also present with enterocolitis. Is there an alternative diagnosis for these children that present with Hirschsprung-like symptoms? Yes. In Africa, we've got a degenerative visceral myopathy, or sometimes called a leomyopathy. How do children with a visceral holomyopathy differ from Hirschsprung's disease children? These children were normal at birth, developed constipation as a toddler, and now this is a progressive disease. So the history will help you to rule out Hirschsprung's disease. It wasn't there since birth. The interesting thing, it only occurs in black Africans. Sad thing is that it also affects the muscle of the urinary tract. There's a positive family history. We do a rectal biopsy. We find the normal ganglion cells, but you specifically need to ask them to evaluate the muscle layer where they then find the leomyopathy. There's no cure for this. You can do a colostomy to relieve their symptoms. In some cases, we did a total colectomy, but this is progressive. So it will just go on and affect the, the small bowel as well. And then they die as teenagers, and then that's due to kidney failure because they also cannot pass urine properly. Would you be able to summarize this talk for us? I think it's very important to always be suspicious. But that doesn't mean you've got to do a lot of investigations on all the children who's got constipation because that is how Hirschsprung's disease present with constipation. So what you need to do is take a proper history, do a close follow-up of newborns with constipation who fail to pass meconium in the first day or two after birth. Remember the five causes of not passing meconium and look specifically for the clinical signs of them. And then I think it's better to refer a patient to rule out Hirschsprung's disease rather than to miss a baby who could be treated for his Hirschsprung's disease. Always take a proper history 
not only of constipated children, of all patients, but very specifically about constipated children. Otherwise, you're going to miss the diagnosis. And if you're unsure, you've got an atypical presentation of constipation, a patient not responding to treatment, a child with a distended abdomen that doesn't want to resolve, a child not reacting to your treatment, please refer to a specialist so that we can evaluate and treat appropriately. Thank you for your time, Dr. Kirsten. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.